You are listening to Talking Images, the official podcast of icmforum.com. Welcome back, everyone. Today, we'll be talking about one of cinema's greatest thieves. This an original hack, this lovely copycat who somehow created a mode of cinema so instantly recognizable, so influential, and oddly enough, so unique that it made him one of the most recognizable names in cinema today. So let's try to calm the conversation down a little bit here. No matter how you feel about Quentin Tarantino's films, and he does have some pretty extreme detractors, I think it's impossible to make the claim that this is not the man that's incredibly passionate about cinema. It comes through in every interview and every public appearance. And it does, at least in my opinion, come through in his films as well. So many of his films feel like an endless amount of homages, easter eggs and references. Literally anything that has grabbed his attention, any idea, any character, any trait, any trope can be brought in at will as he carves out his own vision of it. He just revels in cinematic history, usually the lower budget B-sides of things. More importantly, he never really tries to hide his inspirations. If anything, he actively wants you to seek out the films that made an impact on him. So let's be honest here. What Tarantino is most known for, well, besides his foot fetish, is his dialogue. It is the way he can make a conversation even about something as mundane as the names of burgers in different continents so captivating and cool. And it's really this idea of coolness that runs through so many of the descriptions of his work. In this episode, we'll talk through just what it is that makes the film of Quentin Tarantino grab people's attention the way they do. Our main focus will be on the two films that put him on the map and to this day can be argued to be his most respected and the films with the least attractors, Reservoir Dogs and Pulp Fiction. We will then compare it to the rest of his career, how it developed, how his approaches change and as an interesting side note how he as a cinephile and seemingly as an extremist believer in author theory is actively engaging in his own over because as we all know his next film is meant to be his last will it though i am joined as usual by two wonderful co-hosts clem and Mathieu. And just before we get started, let's get one thing quite clear. Do we have any Tarantino haters here? Nope, I'm a big fan. It depends. He made my favorite film of all time, which is Reservoir Dogs, but I think that later on in his career he made films that I like a bit less. So I think it will be interesting to discuss that in this episode. And we can start with Mathieu. Hi, I'm Mathieu, Teproc on the phone. And as I just said, I'm a big fan of Tarantino. I count him as one of my top five favorite directors who really stand above everyone else. He was someone I was aware of before I became a cinephile, which was quite late, when I was a young adult. But Tarantino, I knew about when I was a teenager, when my brother made me watch Pulp Fiction. It was also, I think, one of the first subtitled movie I watched, because obviously he insisted on watching it in original version, which was, of course, very important, because with Tarantino, dialogue is so key. And so, yeah, Tarantino was an important filmmaker for me in discovering cinema. 
Hey, this is Clem from France. I'm happy to be back. I also knew about Tarantino before I started getting serious into watching films. He is obviously one of the biggest names in modern cinema, so I think it's normal that pretty much everyone knows about him. I think the first film I saw of his was Pulp Fiction. I remember not really liking it at the time and uh, thinking it was boring. I think I even stopped about uh, halfway through the film. It was only about a year or two after that I went back and watched it in full this time and uh, quite enjoyed it. And obviously, as I said before, he made my favorite film of all time, which is Reservoir Dogs. It's a film that I saw quite early on in my cinematic journey because I saw it when I was working on the top 250 by IMDb, which is the first list I ever really worked on. I guess I should mention that Pulp Fiction is the film I consider to be my favorite of all time when I get that question asked. So that's kind of fortuitous for this podcast. Yeah, that's pretty incredible. Yeah, so out of the two films, we'll be focusing most of the podcast on at least one of the co-hosts has a favorite film. That's, that's absolutely incredible. And, and just to be clear, we didn't plan this. So just a quick question for you, Clem. Did you see Pulp Fiction that first time before or after you saw Reservoir Dogs? I saw Pulp Fiction before. I must have tried to see it for the first time when I was about uh, 15 or 16. Then I uh, saw it in full for the first time when I was about 17. And uh, I think I watched Reservoir Dogs a few months after. I saw Pulp Fiction, as I mentioned, when I was, I think, 13, 14, maybe. I remember not getting everything that was happening in that movie. I was, I think, just a little too young, maybe. Reservoir Dogs, I saw not very long after. But it took me a longer time to see everything else. Yeah, I don't even remember which of them I saw first, but I know that I saw both, like, almost immediately as I was getting into cinema, because Queen Thirteen was such a massive name. I think Kill Bill, you know, had just been coming out. I probably saw Kill Bill first, to be honest, because that was such a big deal. It was catered more to teenagers, which was what I was in the early 2000s. So I think that's probably the first. And then immediately I went back to watch his earlier stuff as I was getting into cinema. And yeah, I was blown away. But I do have one question, though. Why do you think Quentin Tarantino has so many detractors? Well, I think it is related to the fact that he is so well-known and such an entry point into cinema. So many people have an opinion on Tarantino, so obviously more people are going to hate him than people hate, I don't know, Krzysztof Kieslowski, right? Just more people know about him. But also, his style is confrontational in some way. Someone might say self-indulgent, which certainly would not be untrue, especially in his later career. And there's also the fact that he is so referential. Many people see that as laziness, maybe, or just a lack of originality. Yeah, I would agree with that. Not because he lacks originality, but because he's trying to do something different. As we said in the intro, he has his own style, and as he is trying to do something different, not everyone is bound to like it. And as you said in the intro, since everyone knows about him, it's normal that he would get much more hate than uh, a filmmaker that would be lesser known. Especially since he makes films that are a little bit different from what viewers are used to see, at least viewers that uh, only watch mainstream films. And I think that when they watch a film from Tarantino, they may be a bit disappointed because they were expecting more from the film they were watching. Yeah, one of the things about Tarantino is that he is at this crossroads between art house, mainstream, and exploitation, right? He is kind of mixing all of that up. He's definitely an auteur. He's very familiar with the Nouvelle Vague and, and stuff like that. But he constantly references exploitation. Some of his favorite movies are exploitation mm -hmm. movies, and he respects them a lot more than most people do, at least in the, let's say, the cinema establishment. 
But at the same time, he's extremely popular. So he's really kind of on all the corners of cinema. And I think that makes him kind of a target for everyone, as well as someone who can be loved by many different people. Yeah, I think you're absolutely spot on there. It's really this interesting thing where he has something for almost everybody as well. Like you said, he does bring in this kind of art house aesthetic. He brings in this way at looking at form, playing around with it, playing what you expect films to be even, which is something we almost never see in a Hollywood film. But then he also has explosive action set pieces like you said these kind of elements that can be confrontational this type of dialogue that could even offend some people and he has this suave coolness factor that especially as he was entering into cinema caught you know the younger generation not to consider off guard but it really brought them in like it made him the household name he is so it's just really interesting that he can do all of these things at once Yes, I mean, the fact that he won the Palme d'Or is in and of itself just so strange. So let's dive into the film that really put him on the map, Reservoir Dogs, which on the face of it would have looked like your standard heist movie, but let's say it does something to kind of twist around that logic. The heist itself is never actually shown. You see the preparation and you see the aftermath. The fate of certain characters is even left on the cutting room floor we don't know what happened and it is also the first time we can glance in at the tarantino dialogue style where just even in the very first scene you're just bombarded by dialogue characters just hanging out like this was his first directorial effort he had no real preparation aside from this one tiny student film that i don't think any of us has seen and he managed to play around with form, create this dialogue style that everyone's been trying to rip off, and at the same time make such a big cult classic. And you can't even call it a cult classic because it seeped into the mainstream in such an extreme way as well. So it's just, I know you're going to claim it is the greatest directorial debut of all time, Clem, and I would probably debate that a little bit with you, but it's certainly one of the best. I can't think of almost any directorial debut that did so many things you wouldn't have expected for a first-time director. Well, I was half-joking when I said that uh, it was the best directorial debut of all time. There are quite a few other candidates for this uh, title. There is obviously uh, Orson Welles' first film, Citizen Kane. You can think of uh, Lumet's first film, Twelve Angry Men, and uh, also of uh, Godard and Truffaut first film, uh, respectively, Abu Souffle and uh, The 400 Blows. Regarding Reservoir Dogs, I think what I really liked about the film when I first saw it was the dialogues. As I said before, it was a film I watched quite early in my cinematic journey, so I hadn't seen that many films back then. And the first thing that really caught my attention were the dialogues, especially in the first 15 minutes of the film, where they are all sitting at the cafe and they talk about this uh, song by Madonna and uh, also about uh, tipping waitresses. The dialogue sounded unneeded, it doesn't make the story go anywhere, we don't learn anything about what's gonna happen, about the relation between all the characters, but it felt extremely natural. It seems like the type of conversation anyone could have with friends. Obviously the dialogues will become more important as the film progresses, especially because the actual scene where the ice takes place is never shown. So it's up to the viewer's imagination to reconstruct that scene with 
what the characters will be saying to each other when we'll be trying to figure out if there is someone that uh, is an undercover cop and if there is one, who it is. I think not showing the actual eyes taking place and only letting the characters talk about it to help the viewer reconstruct that uh, scene was a very good idea. It's a thing that, uh, from what I remember, was... Uh, sometimes used in a film from the 50s or uh, 60s, especially in some film noir, where the ice was not uh, shown either, probably because it was um, hard for the filmmaker to uh, to shoot that type of scenes. But I think it's way more in common for a film that uh, came out in the 90s. So not showing this height scene was a bold bet, but I think that uh, Tarantino won it. I definitely agree about that first scene. That first scene is such a statement from Tarantino as the first scene of his first film, both in terms of the dialogue, as you said, which is obviously his trademark and one of the things that makes him very recognizable, but also just the way it's shot. I mean, it's very simple, right? It's just going around the table, but that is very effective and it's not the easiest way to shoot it, not the most intuitive way. That's also part of what makes it impressive for a first scene of a first film. I think another thing we should mention about Reservoir Dogs is something that we would find in Pulp Fiction as well, which is the boldness in terms of the story. I mean, of course, Tarantino did not invent the flashback, but the way he uses it in Reservoir Dogs is pretty creative because, I mean, I'm assuming we are spoiling all of these movies. We only learned that there is an undercover cop in the film about halfway through, I think. I mean, it's pretty late, which is certainly not the first time this has been done, but it's Again, not the easiest way maybe to tell the story. And it's very effective. Yes, absolutely. And the way the film is made and what we see on the screen isn't really helping us in uh, figuring out if there is an undercover cop and uh, also who it is. I was going to say that that first scene, it does have this tiny, tiny ounce of actual story value, especially on rewatch because it is Tim Roth who tells everybody who didn't tip. From that kind of, it's everybody's jumping up and down after saying like, he's the rat. <laughs> yeah, he's already snitching. What Clem said also about the fact that you would not guess necessarily that there is a cop early on is, yeah, because we are introduced to this dynamic between Harvey Keitel and Tim Roth, which is the key uh, emotional point of the film, right? It's, it's what grounds the film. It's this decision that Keitel makes to stick with this guy. And you get that before you learn he's a cop, which puts you into Keitel's shoes. You understand where he is coming from and you understand the more cranberry he is facing. And I think that also ties into what it's so interesting in this scene in terms of Tarantino doing so many different things at the same time. Because on one hand, he's introducing us to all of these characters. And like you said, setting the stage where we learn a little bit about the characters. We learn about, perhaps most importantly, their relationship, the way they communicate. Like you said, you can even dispel the notion that there is another cover cup there because you see how they talk to each other. Then you have the element of putting in a clue of who could be the cop. And then on top of all of that, you also have the fact that he introduces you to his style and the kind of movie you're about to watch. So it's both preparing you in a way for the stylistic experience, preparing you for the way we'll experience his characters and adding clues for the story. It's, again, incredibly impressive way to open an incredibly impressive directorial debut. I was looking at some reviews from the time of Reservoir Dogs and I actually saw one critic compared it at the time to the reaction that people got from the Lumiere film with the train coming into the station. 
I think that's a hyperbole, but it still shows how different it seemed at the time. And I think one other aspect of that is the violence. Violence obviously wasn't new in cinema. I mean, the 70s and 80s are filled with very violent exploitation film, and even in less exploitation, you have Sam Peckinpah. Nonetheless, there is the torture scene in Reservoir Dogs, which at the time was very controversial and really sparked a lot of discussion. When, when you see it now, it's actually very restrained, especially compared to recent Tarantino films. When Mr. Blonde is about to take the ear off, the camera goes to the wall and then comes back with him having the ear in his hand, which is pretty gory, sure. But if you look at Django Unchained and his later films, he would definitely have shown you the act were he making this film 20 years later. And yet it was very controversial. That's also, I think, a sign of how Reservoir Dogs was kind of a paradigm shift in the industry, or at least American cinema. Yeah, I was going to say that because obviously if you look at gore, what the Italians were doing in the 70s and 80s, including you know, stuff like Cannibal Holocaust, like obviously went much, much, much further in terms of detail, in terms of graphic effects of shopping out eyeballs, etc., here, Tarantino is doing something disrestrained and is causing such reactions in America. So that shows how different expectations people would be coming to a film like Reservoir Dogs with. Yeah, I think part of it is also the context. I mean, this was screened in festivals. This was seen as respectable, even though he was not very well known yet. You had major actors. I think that's maybe part of why the reaction was so strong, even though certainly you had exploitation films and Italian films that were going much further before. And what's also very interesting here is that even in the end, Trentino included some errors. You know, the famous, famous error at the end where someone gets shot who wouldn't logically be shot. And he left that in, both as an Easter egg, and just because he really, really wanted people to have something to discuss. And I think this is the kind of thing that is a little bit different with Tarantino as well, because he seems to really want conversations around this film. He want people to engage with his films. He want people to see things that aren't really there and think something else into them. And I think that also ties in with the way he cut out the heist and cut out certain characters so you don't even see or know what exactly is happening to them. And this is something he really dived into further with some of his other films, but you kind of feel that there's so much else going on in this world he created and we're only seeing a tiny part of it. Most people who love Reservoir Dogs have always been talking, always been wanting to just talk about how, how would it be to actually see those scenes. And personally, I think that Reservoir Dogs is probably better because that scene isn't there. But, you know, that want and need to know what happened, to see what happened, and just imagining all the additional great scenes there could have been is still incredibly tempting. Well, personally, I love the film just the way it is. I think that uh, everyone will have different images of uh, what uh, really happens in uh, the scenes that are not shown. And I think that's a good thing. I think it's... Uh, Better sometimes not to show certain aspects of the film and let the viewer's imagination just figure out on its own what could have happened and uh, make their own film in a way with uh, what they have. So actually, I don't think I ever thought about wanting to see the heists. Maybe it's because I saw Reservoir Dogs as a teenager and I hadn't seen that many movies. So I didn't necessarily register that it was strange that we didn't see the heist, but it never came to mind. I think what you said about the ending is an example of how playful Tarantino is, of the way he plays with the audience 
and that's present in all of his movies. And I think that instinct to say, oh, well, let's keep it. It doesn't matter. It will be something for people to think about is characteristic of that. And obviously, he took all of the elements that made Reservoir Dogs stand out and he just blew it up so much bigger for his next feature, Pulp Fiction. Now with a much bigger cast, much longer length. And instead of cutting part of one story out, what he did here was to have three, well, actually technically four different timelines and stories and then tell them completely out of sequence to the point that characters who may have died in one story will be alive and well in another story because these stories are happening in different days, different weeks. There's overlaps of characters, even overlaps of plotting, but the connection is only in fragment. And he tells this story, still playing with form, still playing with all of these elements in such a, again, we can only really say cool way that it worked for mass audiences because he had the characters, he had the dialogue, he had the infamous burger conversation, he had the what does Marcello Wallace look like, you know, conversation and Samuel Jackson's speech. And he had so many characters that live on to this day. And perhaps most of all, he created this world that was clearly so alive with so many elements and so many characters that people just want to live in it, experience it over and over again. And as this is his very favorite film, I'll move this over to Mathieu. I think it's interesting to say that Pulp Fiction is Reservoir Dogs, but bigger. I actually never thought of it that way, but you're definitely right. Reservoir Dogs was very constrained by budgets, which I can see how one might like it better that way because it's very focused. But Pulp Fiction has this sprawling quality. As you said, it's really a whole milieu we are discovering, right? This Los Angeles criminals, and we get these three stories that intersect a bit. But yes, you've got this much bigger scope. I think that really fits with what Tarantino likes to do, which is a hangout movie. We see that a little bit in Reservoir Dogs at the start, that whole like a virgin and tipping conversation. It's just being there with these characters, finding them entertaining and interesting in some way. Pulp Fiction is really more of that. It's just John Travolta and Samuel Jackson talking about foot massages and then him having to take out Uma Thurman. And it's just being with the characters and being with this director who is very present. You have the time that Uma Thurman makes a little square. There's a very close relationship between the director and the audience in Tarantino's movies. And I think that that big sprawling story really fits it very well, even though I also love Kosawa Dogs. Yes, as I said before, Tarantino's first two films are filled with dialogues that honestly you could have with uh, your friend when you're sitting at a cafe or driving or having lunch. You could definitely have this uh, type of everyday conversation that the main characters in uh, his films are having. And that's what makes it so interesting, because even though the conversations are normal day-to-day talk, the situation in which the characters are in are not something that the average person experiences day-to-day, which offers a contrast between the ordinary dialogue and the not-ordinary situations. Something else I do want to say about Pulp Fiction is how he is, I think, perfecting his exploration of ethics and the social contract in this film. Obviously, Pulp Fiction is first and foremost 
a very entertaining film. That is, his first goal as a filmmaker is to entertain you. And he does that very well. But I think what elevated for me, and this is also present in Reservoir Dogs and many of his other movies, in fact, you could say that all of Tarantino's movies take place in one universe, which is kind of the movie universe. They are obviously connected with some Easter eggs, but they are also connected in that it's a very Hobbesian world, in the sense that everyone is constantly out for themselves. And what Tarantino explores is how their codes really makes them interact with each other. What are their limits and when will they break them and when will they not? And in that sense, he is cynical because everyone is self-interested in his movies, but he has more humanism than maybe someone like Peckinpah, which I mentioned already. That is, I think, what brings me back to his films. I find that idea of exploring just ethics really interesting, and I think Pulp Fiction really does the best with that. I think the whole arc that Samuel Jackson goes through and the way he reinterprets his own monologue is really realization of principles applied to reality and how he would spew that out without thinking about it, but then he faces what it actually means. Now that you mention it, Mathieu, I was thinking about the end of Reservoir Dogs, and I was wondering if we could not link the two endings and see one as the contrary to the other. In Reservoir Dogs, when Mr. White, the character plays by Harvey Kittle, learns the truth, his life, or at least what's left of it, takes a turn for the worse. In Pulp Fiction, however, when um, the character played by Samuel L. Jackson learns the truth, his life takes a turn for the best. At the very end, in Pulp Fiction, even though he has the opportunity to shot both of the assailants, and it's uh, funny to notice that uh, in both scenes, at the end, a character played by Tim Roth has a gun pointed at him by one of the two main characters, whether it is Mr. White or Samuel L. Jackson. And in one movie, Harvey Kittle ends up shooting him and gets shot in return. And in Pulp Fiction, the character played by Samuel L. Jackson doesn't shoot him and doesn't get shot. So maybe there is some kind of parallel to be drawn between the two situations. I definitely see a parallel there. I didn't think about it necessarily, but uh, I agree. There is also something else I was thinking about for Pulp Fiction, is that in Reservoir Dogs, there are some references to some of Tarantino's favorite films. The most obvious one is the reference to the movie Kansas City Confidential, in which three men rob a bank and do not know each other's names. They don't even know what the other robbers look like. So it's impossible if they get caught to well, tell what the other's name are and even what they look like. So, which is an idea that uh, obviously Tarantino took for Reservoir Dogs. And I was trying to think of a similar situation in Pulp Fiction where Tarantino would have took an idea from one of his uh, favorite film and use it for Pulp Fiction. But right now, I can't think of uh, anything, and I was wondering if uh, you, Chris, or maybe you, Mathieu, have spotted anything that uh, I wouldn't be remembering. Yeah, I'm not actually sure. I mean, obviously there's references to other works in it. I mean, the most obvious one is John Travolta dancing 
tying it in with Saturday Night Fever a little bit, which is obviously one of Travolta's biggest roles by that point. But I really can't pinpoint any any film that could serve as the main influence here. And I think it's also because there's just so many different stories here. It really just dives into more of these concepts and tropes than specific films themselves. You know, I'm sure there's some website on the internet that has a list of references for Pulp Fiction, but I cannot think of a very specific one either. Maybe I think the dance scene is also supposed to be a callback to Bordapart, which also gave Tarantino the name for his production company, A Band Apart. But that's all I can think of. It feels very referential, but not super specifically, at least not that comes to my mind. And I think talking about tropes and convention expectations with Tarantino plays around a lot there, there is this one massive element of Pulp Fiction that we haven't even started talking about, which is just how damn funny it is. Because you have these conversations, often mundane conversations, in, like you said earlier, these extreme circumstances, you know, bickering with dead bodies, all, all of these weird fixations of where people are, the confusions they're in, the bizarre and extreme scenarios that happen. I mean, it is pretty hilarious film and this is something that Tarantino plays around with essentially all of his films which is that they're, they're so irreverent of most conventions they want you to laugh they comment upon themselves in a way they don't take themselves too seriously they're kind of winking at you and playing along with you to get into more and more bizarre situations that will elicit that reaction yeah I definitely agree and actually, I was watching a documentary on Tarantino this morning, and he mentioned that when he toured with Reservoir Dogs, he would have this impression that some people did not feel allowed to laugh at the film. They didn't know what to make of it, and so they thought maybe it was too serious to laugh when he thought they should be laughing. And so with Pulp Fiction, he said he explicitly tried to make it funnier, more obviously funny, so that people would feel comfortable with laughing. And it also made me think, maybe to jump ahead a little bit, of something that was happening with The Hateful Eight, where people would laugh in my theater and in others as well, when Jennifer Jason Lee's character would be hit. And that's kind of the dual aspect of that. Tarantino has a very, as you say, irreverent approach, and sometimes it can create some problems for him. I think there is also the fact that uh, Tarantino loves exploitation films and loves to remind us that he loves exploitation films. And that makes it hard for him not to include some kind of uh, comic elements throughout his films. I'm not sure what you mean, because exploitation is not necessarily funny, is it? Not necessarily, but exploitation films are usually a bit over the top, and Tarantino likes being over the top as well. I think he likes to push the boundaries even further than exploitation films to create this uh, over-the-top comical scenes. It's not necessarily funny for everyone, but for someone who enjoys exploitation films, to see the boundaries pushed even further could be seen for some as um, comical. I think you're completely right there, Clem. I think it's also a way that you can actually elevate this a little bit because yes if you look at the lower budget spaghetti western for instance or black exploitation or any of the random grindhouse films that existed back in the day they would do these things that were absolutely ridiculous and people would often laugh like even in the horror movies because they were so silly so over the top and you yeah, know they weren't taking themselves seriously they would just go for it whatever it was and it would be this mix match of feelings and atmosphere but usually at least without you know a clear 
clear talent. And what Tarantino did in a way was to take these elements, but be far more, let's say, upfront about it, which is to say he is so self-aware and he does it in such a specific way that it loses what people call so much good sometimes. It loses that kind of feeling where you're not sure if you're laughing at it or with it to this sense where you're very well aware that you're laughing with it and that Tarantino is doing all of these things specifically on purpose to elicit that reaction and it even feels clever because of that because that's one of the things that people love so much about this film too the way he like you mentioned earlier interacts with the audience and wants them to think wants them to react and wants them to get with his films as films which also ties us back to some of his earlier influences like you mentioned with the French New Wave because that was exactly what they were doing Though, of course, it never had anywhere close to the degree of mainstream appeal that Quentin Tarantino ended up having. Well, Godard was actually pretty popular, and Truffaut also in France, at least in the first few years. As Godard went more experimental, less so. But... And from what I remember, Godard doesn't think too highly of uh, Tarantino's films. Unsurprising. <laughs> yes. Yes, not... <laughs> To be fair, though, and it might just be because Godard keeps saying bad things about Tarantino's film, but I think I read recently that Tarantino said that he had outgrown Godard. So now the feeling is starting to get mutual, I suppose. I do think that what we've been talking about now with Reservoir Dogs and Pulp Fiction actually highlights something that I personally think changed a little bit with all of the films that came after. And it could be that this is just something that I, for some reason, would care about. But his two first films weren't really directly based on individual movies or individual genres. They were more playful with form. They were more playful with ideas. Their main focus was Tarantino introducing his style of dialogue and just playing around with the medium, having fun and being irreverent. But then my view, at least, is that all of the films he made after that, from Jackie Brown to Kill Bill to Death Proof and Grindhouse as a whole, to Younger Unchained and The Hateful Eight, and I will exclude Once Upon a Time in Hollywood a little bit from this, but all of the six films he made between that are specifically riffing up one genre, one type of B-movie. Obviously, Jackie Brown is his take on the exploitation. Kill Bill is his take on the Kung Fu movies, though a little bit of revenge plot tied in. That proof is obviously, as it was part of the Grand House Project, a very specific reference to that type of low-budget film, you know, including playing into it. And then you had Inglourious Bastards, which literally takes its title from an Italian war film. Again, the cheaper B-movie war films. Tying us over to Django and Chain, The Hateful Eight, which both play straight into the spaghetti western tropes and visual experiences, you know, including bringing Ennio Morricone on board. So it seems like in all of these, he's focusing in specifically on a genre. And instead of in his two first films, where he is playing around with style and being himself and expressing himself, it seems like in the majority of his later films, there's also a much larger degree of emulation, where he's trying to also present these styles a little bit and riff off these styles specifically. That creates a bit of a different experience. I would only quibble with Reservoir Dogs being still a heist movie, admittedly a subversive heist movie in that 
the heist is not technically in it, but still it, it does work within that genre because it is pretty typical in heist movies that after the heist, it goes badly, right? I mean, that's, that's pretty typical. But I agree with you regarding Pulp Fiction being kind of a more, it is a crime movie, but it has this all-encompassing quality, especially when you look at Tarantino's work as a whole. You're right, it's not found in his later movies, which are more specific. Though, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, did you say what genre that was? Because I think that's a little hard to nail down. Yeah, no, exactly. From Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, I, I extend it from, from this, because that seems to be almost meta-commentary on Tarantino's career as well, tying in elements of several of his films. It's impossible to really characterize that as a specific genre, because it, if anything, Tarantino thinks back, it clearly brings us back once again to the period of cinema that's most interesting. And we do see references to, again, Spaghetti Western and all of these other films he's been bringing up, but it seems just a different step for him, either in terms of self-evaluation and just in terms of, as some people are saying, self-indulgence, and also just in taking on a bit of a different kind of story. I do think there's one aspect that's key in those first two movies that we haven't discussed, which is the soundtracks. Those soundtracks are so iconic. There are these moments, I mean, the opening theme of Reservoir Dogs, when they are walking in their suits, and of course, the torture scene. And Pulp Fiction is just wall-to-wall -wall iconic with its use of music. Yes, obviously, the soundtrack is very important in Quentin Tarantino's films. I read somewhere in an interview that Tarantino would actually pick the music before writing the scenes. So he would have the music in his head and then later on write the film to go along with the music he was listening to. Which I think is an unusual way of working. Usually it would be the other way around. The movie would be made and then the composer would come along and write music to go along with the, the scenes that have already been made. And I think that the importance he attached to the soundtrack could be seen in a way as a reference to his love for western films. From what I think, the soundtrack started becoming popular in the 60s and that was largely because of western movies. And as we know, Tarantino likes western movies, so maybe his love for soundtrack come from this love he has for western movies. Well, it certainly played in with the western films he made, which... Uh obviously have really great symphonic music by Andy Morricone. In his early films, I think the fact that he picked the music before he even started working on the scenes properly showcases the way he thinks about film and the way he thinks about building mood. So he, he clearly thought, this is a first song I can create a very specific mood to. I can contrast it with something and it will work effectively. And then he could think of specifically how he could bring that to life. I think that the way he uses music, especially in his first film, but also in Kill Bill and, and a few others, is just playing it, well, to mention earlier, this irreverence. There's this way that he picks songs that are a little bit sarcastic, a little bit opposite of what we would expect, sometimes bringing back things from the past you wouldn't expect to see in this context. And again, it just works so well because it manages to create such iconic experiences with them. I think one comparison point we can make regarding the use of soundtracks is with Scorsese. From what I understand, Scorsese was one of the first to really use wall-to-wall -wall soundtrack of pop music, especially rock and roll, for his films. And Tarantino is obviously within that trend, but he, it is a little different in that part of what allows him, I think, to pick the music before shooting the scenes, as you mentioned, is that he does not pick the most obvious music. It's all kind of stuff that you would hear on the radio at the time, 
but it's not like the biggest hits. I think in that way, it's different from how Scorsese uses it. Because with Scorsese, I think it's in part sometimes to have some irony between the happy music and the terrible happenings on screen, but also to underline how these people are living in the same world as us. I think there's also a bit of that with Tarantino. But as you mentioned, Chris, it's also about this playfulness and this way in which Tarantino is as much a filmmaker as a curator. And you see that again with, as you mentioned, Jackie Brown as exploitation and the various Westerns and Death Proof for revenge films from the 70s. Tarantino is a curator both in his movies and outside his movies. And I think that's also something he does through his soundtracks. And I think that just shows how much Tarantino is an author and how much his films are in a different category. Especially because there are not that many film directors working today that when you think about their films, you also think about the soundtrack. Especially, as I said, in today's cinema industry. There is Scorsese, as you said, Mathieu. But apart from these two, I have to say I can't really think of another one. And especially one who would use such different songs in all of his films. That's such a great point, actually. I'm just sitting and trying to think. And I mean, my mind jumps back to various films from, say, the 60s, 70s, you know, where they would get some kind of deal with a major band, want to support them, you know, like Wim Wenders' first feature, having loads of songs by the Kings, for instance. But it's just something completely different. So I, I can't think of anyone, especially today, that, that does something like that. I think, actually, in some way, the Marvel films, especially the Guardians of the Galaxy films, are very inspired by Tarantino in how they use music. But I think the Guardians of the Galaxy films manage it. But very often, they tend to use things that are much more obvious, like in Captain Marvel using Just a Girl. I mean, I, I think, actually, there is a fair bit of, of use of soundtracks in films today that is influenced by Tarantino. But you are right that there is no... Maybe no major auteur that uses them quite as much. At least I can think of one. And Guardians of the Galaxy is also such a good comparison point there because that is the hangout films of Marvel, if you will, which must be at least in some way inspired or in the way they just talk, hang out, have you know, specific kind of personas clashing, especially the last one, which is literally just them hanging out on a planet talking to each other, which could have been a lot better. But I can clearly see some similarities there. Actually, just one of those examples just jumped to mind, which is Edgar Wright in general does use soundtrack quite a bit, and especially in Baby Driver, which is obviously a film all about music and how the main character relates to it. And there is definitely a strong Tarantino influence there. And to bring this back to the man himself, I would also love to hear a little bit more about how you guys assess his later career. Do you think it holds up to his first two features? Do you think it's better? Or you think it, for whatever reason, took a bit of a dip? Personally, I think his first two films are his best, Pulp Fiction and Reservoir Dogs. I like some of his other films. I like, for example, the first Kill Bill film. I also like Glorious Bastards, which I think I saw when I was about 15, 16 when it came out, because that was when I was starting to get into cinema. Regarding Inglorious Bastards, I have a bit of an anecdote. When I... Uh, so it, as I said, I was about 15, 16, and it was a time where I didn't speak English that well. So I, I couldn't understand it when it was written, but I couldn't really understand it when it was spoken. And the copy of the film I had only had English subtitles for the French and German part, but not for the English part. So I remember that the first um, scene, when they start talking in English, I couldn't really understand 
what they were saying, but I could understand what was going on. And I think it's interesting to see that if we take back these first two films, Reservoir Dogs and Pulp Fiction, someone who doesn't understand the dialogues couldn't have any idea of what is going on. However, in his later films, it's way easier to guess what the dialogues are about and what the story is about and what's going on in the film, because it relies way more on telling a story through images and uh, not building it with dialogues the way he used to do before, or at least less, in my opinion. And maybe that's why I like his later films a bit less. And to be fair, I don't have any strong dislike or any dislike towards his films, but uh, Jackie Brown didn't do much for me. The second Kill Bill didn't do much for me either, and um, it would be the same with uh, Django Unchained. And uh, I have to say, I haven't seen yet The Eightful Eight or uh, Death Proof. Once Upon a Time in Hollywood was an okay film, probably his best lately. I also think that when he made Pulp Fiction Reservoir Dogs, he was more juvenile. He was a young filmmaker starting to make films who had all of his influences, and I think he just wanted to put all of his influence into one single film every time. Probably because when you start making film, you never know if you would have the opportunity to make another one. So maybe you just uh, want to uh, throw all the ideas you have into one because it may be your only chance. And that's probably why uh, Reservoir Dogs and uh, Pulp Fiction are films I found more interesting than uh, his later films. Because his later films, uh, as we said, only focus on one aspect each time. Um, Jackie Brown being black exploitation, Inglorious Bastards being war films... Kill Bill being martial art, which could be good in a way because it gives him more time to really explore all of uh, the different uh, genre of films he likes, but it just seems to me that he somehow lost something along the way that uh, made him so special in the first place. Yeah, he got too comfortable, is what I think essentially you're saying. Could be that, yes, absolutely. For me, and I, and I do love some of Tarantino's later films, and I like all of them. But I think he got slightly more muted, especially in the films he did right after Pulp Fiction. I mean, it was such a shock going into Jackie Brown after Pulp Fiction, which, despite being more directly based on black exploitation, it had a lower amount of energy. It was the camera was usually further away from the characters. Like you didn't have the same kind of intensity or humor or creativity in terms of narrative and form that his first two had it just felt a little bit flatter because of that and then i'm not sure what happened when it jumped to kill bill in the sense it almost felt like it was overcorrecting a little bit because it was so much happening all at once the narrative jumping everywhere this whole range of different types of jokes etc and a lot of it worked some of it didn't which is why i think jackie brown is one of his weaker films and that kill bill just didn't quite reach greatness well, I think Jackie Brown is a bit of an um, outlier in his filmography. In my experience, the more someone likes Tarantino, the the lower Jackie Brown is, is in their ranking. And the ones that kind of like Tarantino, but don't, don't necessarily love all he's about, tend to think Jackie Brown is one of his better films. And I think that's because it's not his script. I mean, it's adapted from an Elmer Leonard novel. And I think that's also why it's so much quieter and more thoughtful than a lot of his movies. I like Jackie Brown, but it's not one of my favorites because I just love Tarantino. And so the more Tarantino-esque a film is, the more I tend to like it. I agree with the conventional wisdom and with you two that his two films are his best ones. 
However, I still love Endless Bastards. I love Hateful Eight. And I also love Once Upon a Time in Hollywood and Death Booth and The Kill Bills. Jungle Unchained is the only one. I mean, I still like it, but I do think it's a little lesser than the rest. I do think there is something in what Clem is saying about him getting comfortable, or at least that's how I put it. Part of it is just success. I mean, the more successful you are, the less people tell you no. And one of the things that everyone says about Tarantino and is absolutely correct is that he is overindulgent. He is only doing what he wants to do and he's hoping that you will enjoy it, especially his last three films. And that's linked also to the loss of his longtime editor, uh, Sally Menke, who edited all of his films through Inglourious Bastards and then she died. And so his last three films, you can definitely see that there is no editor to cut his most overindulgent scenes. I love it anyway, but I definitely understand why many people are a little tired of it. I'd also like to jump in on the love for Glorious Passage there. I also saw it in the cinema when it came out. I was just slightly older. And to me, it was his best since Pulp Fiction. And that was what was going around telling absolutely everybody at the time. Because it did so many of the things that Pulp Fiction Reservoir Dogs did. It had the long, drawn-out dialogue scenes. It had the same degrees of coolness. It had a playfulness with form what we'd expect from the story. And I, I think it's also a testament to Tarantino in the same way that Pulp Fiction Reservoir Dogs resurrected a lot of actors. Glorious Bastards clearly kicked off Christoph Waltz's entire career. And his role here, the type of dialogue scenes he's allowed to have, and the type of character interplay here, which gets, well, frankly, hilarious, occasionally grotesque, and obviously very, very violent. Santino plays that off so incredibly well. One of the things that I think he does maybe even better than before is just set pieces, long scenes with this mounting tension. And I think Inglourious Bastards has the best example of that, perhaps one of his best scenes in his whole career, in the opening scene with Christophe Valls and the French farmer, Denis Ménochet. It's just a great scene. It's very Ennio Morricone. I think it uses music from Ennio Morricone. I do think that he has matured as a filmmaker. I think you see something like Inglourious Bastards, something like The Hateful Eight. It's, I agree, less all over the place, which maybe is less exciting than something like Pop Fiction. But there is also something more both overindulgent and more restrained in some ways. The Hateful Eight especially is, to me, a film that is his most political film. That is something that was absent of his cinema early on. He definitely was not political. And I think The Hateful Eight is. And it is about how the Civil War did not really solve <laughs> racism, as I think we all know in America. And I think that is an interesting aspect of his cinema now is that there is this more political aspect and it's also present in some ways in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. I just really want to jump in there on what you said about drawing out suspense because what I was instantly thinking about was that scene at the bar where the characters have are pretending to be German and they're playing this game with the actual German soldiers and the way that scene slowly builds tension and plays with convention and just builds that out and out and out. Again, an example of how Tarantino could do a very, very long, intricate set piece. And then what's kind of interesting here when you jumped to The Hateful Eight is that that scene in the bar is essentially part of the spirit of The Hateful Eight just drawn out for such a long time because here you literally have almost the majority of the action taking place 
on one single location with these people inside of this. It's not quite a bar, it's a haberdashery, but just sitting around talking, feeling the tension between them, wondering who will reveal what, learning who the different characters are. And obviously this ties back to Reservoir Dogs as well, which was quite similar with primarily one location focus, but just the way he's able to stick off these characters behind closed doors and Again, have this hangout feeling, but have it with so much specific suspense. I haven't seen the A full eight, but I was thinking of uh, something. Tarantino, in almost all of his films, likes to include a um, Mexican standoff. It's a trademark he had since Reservoir Dogs, and I believe it has been used in every, every film of his since the first one. And I was wondering if... Uh, there is also a Mexican standoff in uh, The Hateful Eight. Oh, yeah. I mean, the whole film is kind of uh, elaborate Mexican standoff in some sense. Okay. Yeah, that, that's what I was kind of saying as well. Like, it's just this one scene from Inglourious Passion, the way it's drawn out, in a very different setting, very different characters, it's drawn out because you have that tension for such a long time. I think one other aspect we could discuss is the interest Tarantino has in experimenting with formats. We saw that with Grindhouse first. I actually haven't seen Grindhouse as it was intended in cinemas. I've only seen the Death Proof half, but that was kind of an experiment in how you show movies. The idea of going back to that double bill with the fake trailers and everything. And now more recently with The Hateful Eight, which was shot in 70 millimeters and sometimes projected in that, even though I didn't get to see it in 70 millimeter. That's something he's gotten into more recently that kind of makes him in a sense a relic <laughs> because the cinema is going more and more digital and he along with a few other filmmakers are kind of resisting that yeah i know that he absolutely loves going to cinema to watch films i think it's not only that he is against digital i think he's also against showing films on tv or on dvds i think that for him cinema should only be experienced in uh, in cinema on a big screen he also has a specific row in which he likes to sit. I believe it's the fourth one, because he said that row 1, 2, and 3 are too close to the screen, and rows 5 and beyond are too far away to really fully appreciate the film you're watching. So apparently the fourth row would be the better one to be fully immersed into the film. Of course he would have a favorite row. That makes total sense. <laughs> yeah, of course. It's also worth mentioning that Tarantino never shot a film on digital, at least not as far as I'm aware. And it's this big focus on ensuring and being campaigning for stopping cinemas from digitizing the experience because he believes there's something just so magical and special in seeing actual film. And this just ties into the type of personality it has. Some people could say it's a little bit obsessive as well, but just the way he's such a purist in a way, and the way he interacts with the medium, the way he interacts with elements from the medium, and the way he's so passionate about bringing it together. Let's just say it fits. Like his personality really, really matches his films. It all comes back to the idea that he is the curator, right? I think that there's something there, again, about Scorsese's generations was deemed to be the film brats, right? The first people who grew up with film, and that's also true of Godard and Truffaut. And Tarantino is kind of the second wave of that, in that he's even more obsessive about the film. And his thing in these films and outside of his films is about communicating that passion. Throughout his films with his many 
references and this idea of all the films being in the world of movies. But also, you know, he has the cinema, the New Beverly, and also his name was used to promote some films. I know that Chunking Express, when it came out in the US, was billed as um, recommended by Tarantino or something like that. It's really his whole identity is that, is curator. Yeah, that ties in with the way he still does top 10 lists of every year as well and speak passionately about so many films. If you go to different Dijek movies, you will see a list of his recommended films as well. So he's just really, really passionate about telling people what he loves and to try to get people to watch what he cares about. Yeah, he's one of us, and that's why we both love and hate him, I suppose. Yeah, it would make a great forum member, I think. So, Quentin, if you're listening to this, please join us. And I think the fact that he is a cinephile himself. There's very few directors who specifically go about talking of themselves as an author. But this is exactly what Tarantino does. He's just openly talking about how he's assessing his films, how other people should be assessing his films. And the fact of the matter is that he wishes to retire after his next film so that he will have a set of 10 films that he will view as essentially perfect and that people who like his films will see as a set that they can discuss. So I think it's interesting that, yes, he wants people to discuss his films, but he also wants people to discuss his entire career as an entity. And he went as far as saying that he might come back like decades later, let's say he was in the 70s and he had another story. But what gave him comfort was that it would be so removed from his earlier work that it would be easy for people to dismiss it or easy for people to not count it with the rest of his work so that the films he's leaving behind now will always be there as a unit. There's just so few directors who are so obsessive about their image and about the story their entire body of work tells. Who else does that? And what can we expect from that final film? Once upon a time in Hollywood does feel like a final film already. And I have no idea. I mean, there has always been this rumor of Tarantino doing a Star Trek movie. Somehow, I doubt that that would be his last film. I'm a little skeptical in general about the whole idea of the 10 film limit that he's always talked about. I mean, you said he mentioned the possibility of a comeback. I just don't see him actually stopping because I think that's just his life. I don't think he can do anything else. But maybe I'm wrong. And in any case, you're right that seeing what he actually chooses as his theoretical last film is going to be interesting. I think it's also kind of fun to tie him in with a few other directors to place him into, you know, the second generation of cinephile directors. He has some very clear counterparts, Richard Linklater and uh, Steven Soderbergh, both coming up around the same time and doing a lot of really referential cinema. And the interesting thing is that Soderbergh, too, specifically said he would retire early. But as we can see from what he's been doing the last few years, that just didn't happen. He couldn't stick to it. So I think you're right. It's quite possible that Tarantino just won't be able to do it. But then again, at the same time, given the kind of overly obsessive personality Quentin Tarantino has, I think he would stick to it. Or if he would actually come back, I can almost imagine him taking a different identity just to make sure that it wouldn't be tied in with his other work. You know, it's just, (laughs) you can just imagine the kind of extreme lengths Tarantino would actually go to make sure that his vision stays true. I can already see the headlines. Oh, this new Tarantino imitation is so bad, it doesn't get anything of what he's doing. But it's actually him. (laughs) Yeah, pretty much. And obviously, we won't find that out then. We'll find it out when he dies over 70 or 80. You know, it's like, huh, I actually did these five films. 
and you hated them all. So I did the right thing. Or if they hated them, I guess it would be his death bed. Well, he's only 57, so that leaves plenty of room for at least one other film. And that one film should technically be his last, because that would be his tenth one. I don't really know if he'll be able to stop himself, as you said. Because if you look at his filmography, he made about three, four films in the last ten years. So I can't really imagine him waiting ten years to do another film. And at the same time, I can't really imagine him making a film in three, four years and just stopping after that. So yeah, maybe just go incognito and release films, but uh, under a pseudonym. Which is, now that I think about it, something that a lot of exploitation film directors did, releasing films under numerous names. So maybe Tarantino would do that, and that would be another reference to the world of exploitation films. Yes, it would be perfect in a way. Yeah, that would be so beautiful, like a picture book ending in a way. Though I do think it's also worth mentioning that Tarantino did break his word once before when he first implied that he wouldn't make another spaghetti western and then when it was revealed that he was making another spaghetti western and the script was stolen and published, he vowed that he wouldn't make The Hateful Eight, but obviously he did it anyways. So you never know, anything could really happen here. Yeah, I always think back of Miyazaki, who also said he would stop and found that he couldn't. <laughs> I think Tarantino will find himself in a similar situation. And I think what I would really want from Tarantino then, especially if this is his last film, would be to see him get more creative, more focused on form, just like Reservoir Dogs and Pulp Fiction, because like that is what has been in some way lacking in his later films when he started to be more about referencing specific genres and playing into their tropes and playing on their tropes as opposed to being this incredibly irreverent filmmaker just playing around with all those tools. Now I'm not sure if he can actually go back to that anymore. It's possible he's just outgrown it and is not as interested in it anymore. But that's really what I would personally love to see from his last film. If this was his last film, what would you guys love to see him do or at least how would you love to feel about it like what would you want him to deliver with it i have no idea i'm very bad at speculating like this i'm really bad at looking forward to things <laughs> i generally find that it kind of ruins the actual experience but i guess i would want him to be do something different on the contrary i think something really like a same testament from him would be interesting i mean it would still be tarantino but Maybe something more in the vibe of Once Point in Hollywood? I'm not sure. I, I guess I would see. Well, obviously, I would like his next film to resemble his first two films, Pulp Fiction and Reservoir Dogs. Not to be sequels or anything, but just to go back to his roots and uh, make a film that uh, is closest to his uh, two debut. I'm sure studios will let him do whatever he wants because uh, he's Tarantino, so no matter what he does, he will bring audience to cinemas. But looking back at his filmography and the film he made, and uh, also looking at the type of films he likes, I can't really think of a type of film he hasn't really done yet. Well, there are some type of exploitation films he hasn't made yet, so maybe uh, an exploitation film, like Sexploitation, for example, or maybe a prison film. Sci-fi could be interesting as well, uh, I just don't know what type of uh, sci-fi he is into. But yes, I can definitely picture Star Trek characters having talks about fit fetish and whatnot. It seems so hilariously wrong, <laughs> but maybe that would make it right? Who knows? Yeah, well, honestly, he's great at writing dialogues, so who knows, maybe he could come up with uh, something. So there's essentially two paths you could take. Either he could continue with what was doing up until once upon a time in Hollywood and go into another type of niche, or he can 
build more on what they did with Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. So even more playful with history, maybe even throwing more meta elements with himself. Maybe he'll even put himself in it. You never know what he'll do. Or he might even be trying to do a straight film. And I think that's what I would be least interested in seeing, just him trying to take on Star Trek or something else and do it in a more conventional way. I did find his top 11 films of all time, which are The Good and Bad and Ugly, Rio Bravo, Blowout, Taxi Driver, His Girl Friday, Five Fingers of Death, Pandora's Box, Carrie, and Faithfully Yours, Five Graves to Cairo, and Jaws. And I guess we haven't really seen him do proper full-on horror movie like Jaws, but he clearly likes the kind of slapstick comedy, so that could be something very interesting for him to jump back to. Like, see him do something like Howard Hawkins' Dirtless comedy, that would be very bizarre to see from someone like Quentin Tarantino, but... Yeah, I don't think there's any way to really guess where he'll go next. Oh, and also for anyone interested, I know we didn't dive into Once Upon a Time in Hollywood too much, but we did do just that in our recent podcast about the best films from 2019. And we didn't want to repeat ourselves. So to sum up Quentin Tarantino and his career, I think we all agree that he is one of the most creative and interesting directors working in Hollywood Today, I think we all can see the way he, unlike almost all others, are not held back or limited by the system and can pursue his own obsessions. And if his next film is indeed his last, at least for now, I think he can be pretty sure we can expect something, if not sensational, at the very least a proper conversation piece, because that's in a way what all of his films are. All of his films are ways to invite comparison, invites so much discussion. We talked about the big hangout movies, but we didn't even bring in you know, the fact that his films are also in a way sandbox movies, where so much of the action happens elsewhere, and we just want to see it, we want to be it, and we feel like we can live in his rich worlds. I think there's so much more to say and to talk about when it comes to Quentin Tarantino. I think so many other people will do just that. And I think we can be pretty sure that that's just what Quentin Tarantino wants us to do. So if you're listening to this, Quentin, feel free to join icmforum.com, write up some of your opinions, and we'd love to hear from you. And you know, we could almost expect it to want to share that. Especially, again, if you're listening to this after your retirement and you have nothing else to do. So let's see if that happens. And until next time, thank you for listening and see you again soon. You have been listening to Talking Images, the official podcast of icmforum.com.